We turn now to God's Word. I would like to read to you the opening verses of Daniel chapter 12 and then talk to you about what's transpired here. Daniel 12 verse 1 says, At that time Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Now, these are some of the final instructions given to Daniel in his final experience with the visitor from the heavens. The explanation that is given to Daniel can be understood in a variety of ways. As we look into the prophetic aspect of Scripture, I think it would be true to say that it is quite legitimate for us to see more than one fulfillment of what is prophesied there. For instance, when we read Psalm 22, there's a statement there that clearly relates to the sufferings of the psalmist as he's going through terrible, terrible times. But that psalm was quoted by the Lord Jesus on the cross. And so when the psalmist said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is perfectly understandable that that was something that was happening in the psalmist's experience. But when the Lord Jesus takes that and applies it to himself, it's obvious that the psalmist was saying more than he knew, more than he understood himself. The same is true here in Daniel. He's quite open about many of the things that he's writing about here. He says that, quite frankly, he didn't understand many of them. But the things that were clear to him were those that were applicable to him and to his time. But hidden in the things that were applicable to him and his time were predictions of things that would happen in the future. And that is, that is why it is sometimes difficult for us in the interpretation of the prophetic aspects of Scripture to know what exactly applies to what. That is why we'll get different interpretations of these passages of Scripture. But what I want to try to do is to deal with the basic things about which people are in general agreement so that we'll get the main thrust. Some may be disappointed that I don't get into more details, but this is as far as I feel that we've time to do right now. Now, the word that comes to Daniel at this particular point is that there's going to be times of great distress. In fact, the time of distress is such as not happened from the beginning of nations up until that time. Now, as we have looked into chapters 10 and 11, we have seen a great unfolding of the history of the time when Daniel lived in the 6th century BC up to the 2nd century BC and the time when a despicable person or a contemptible person came to the throne in Jerusalem, a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. And it seems that the initial interpretation of this particular passage of scripture has to do with what happened during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, times of unprecedented distress. 
at the risk of boring you because we've already talked about this, let me just remind you that what he did was utterly contemptible in the eyes of the Jewish people. He engaged in activities in the temple that profaned the temple. He tried to close down the worship of Jehovah. He did all kinds of things that were a deep affront to the people. And as a result of that, there was a a tremendous rebellion against him led by the Maccabees. And as a result, there was terrible distress. There was terrible bloodshed. All kinds of dreadful things were happening at that particular time. The thrust of this message is that even in times of distress, there will be promises of deliverance. That's the sentence to remember. The promise is that even in times of distress, there will be hope of deliverance. And this is spoken about here in in rather dramatic terms, in fact, very dramatic terms. It says there'll be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. And then in dramatic language, this deliverance is described as follows. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, what Daniel is saying here must have sounded very, very strange indeed to his contemporaries. You see, the Jewish people in the Old Testament did not have a clearly defined doctrine of resurrection as do Christians in the modern era. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, when you look at what they have to say about death and dying, it seems to be rather vague. People seem to move off into a shadowy realm called Sheol, and there is no clear definition and little evidence of hope of a resurrection. What Daniel says here, however, it talks about people rising from the dust of the earth to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. The Jewish idea of resurrection was not so much a personal thing. Their idea of resurrection was more national. In other words, when they saw Israel in the dust of death, they believed that one day God would awaken them and those who lived in the dust of death would awake to life everlasting, a a richness of life down here on earth, whilst others would come back to shame and contempt. Perhaps uh, one illustration will suffice here. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with the prophecy of Ezekiel will know that on one occasion, Ezekiel was transported to a valley that was full of dry bones. Even if you don't know Ezekiel chapter 37, you probably know the spiritual about them bones, them bones are going to walk around. And I will not sing it for you, although uh, I I would like to do that very much, but nobody else would like me to do it. This song is, is based on Ezekiel's experience. He stands over this valley of dry bones and he has asked the question, can these bones live? That, that, that's a hard question. Can these bones live? And God, God asks him this question, you see, and Ezekiel does what we do when God asks us a hard question. We say, oh, thou knowest, O Lord. And the Lord at that point says, I know that I knowest. What I want to know is what thou knowest. Now answer the question, can these bones live? before Ezekiel can answer, he's given the instructions, preach to the bones. (laughs) Preach to the bones. Now, I must admit, occasionally, I've had that sort of picture before me. (laughs) 
preach to the bones. That's not a very encouraging task to be given. And then he is told, pray to the wind. And the, the point is this, that this is Israel. The valley is full of dry bones. That's Israel. Gone through terrible times. They are in the dust of death, to use Daniel's terminology. But God is saying to Ezekiel and God is saying to Daniel, can these bones live? Can these who live in the dust of death awake to newness of life? In other words, can Israel be revived? Can Israel be restored? You know what happened. Ezekiel preaches to the bones. There's a great shaking and a great rattling, and the bone comes to bone. The neck bone connected to the head bone, and the head bone connected. Well, I'm going the wrong way around, but everything, everything gets connected to something or other, and then the bones come together, and then sinews come on the bones, and then flesh comes on the bones, and then skin comes over the bones, and then they stand up, and they're a mighty great army. This is the Hebrew concept of resurrection. In other words, Israel is a valley full of dry bones. They are in the dust of death. But don't worry, folks. Even though they're going through times of deep distress, God promises to deliver his people. There's another thing that we need to notice here, that some of the people at the time of the rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes, had been very wise. They had been strong. They had resisted those people who knew their God. And Daniel goes on to say that those kind of people will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead others in this way of righteousness will be like the stars shining forever and ever. But in contrast to that, he says that that there were those people who identified with Antiochus Epiphanes. They bought into the whole Hellenization of Israel. They moved away from the worship of Jehovah. They embraced all the foreign gods, and they will not rise in the revival of Israel, but they will find themselves deeply shamed for what they have done. However, those whose names are written in the book, and over and over again in the Old Testament, there is this idea that God keeps a book of his people. And those whose names are in God's book, they are the ones who are there because they stand firm, they are faithful, they resist, they know their God, and there are those who will be awakened to utter shame, and there are those who will enjoy the glorious revival of Israel. This would be interpreted by the people who are reading Daniel round about the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. However, we have to say that it is legitimate to see a fuller meaning in these words than the one I've just given to you. And we can say this quite emphatically, and let me show you why. Matthew chapter 24. And in this particular passage, we have the privilege of reading a commentary on Daniel by none other than Jesus Christ himself. And you'll see that his commentary on Daniel is really quite different from what would have been understood by the people in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? All right, let me pause there. The disciples, they're in the big city of Jerusalem. 
They're like folks who've come up from the country and they're standing there and they're looking at these big buildings and say, wow, just look at these big buildings. And Jesus simply says to them, you see these wonderful buildings, including this magnificent temple? There won't be one stone left standing on another. I'm telling you precisely what is going to happen. Now, the disciples are nonplussed by this statement. They go up onto the Mount of Olives from where they can sit and look down on the magnificent temple across the brook Kidron. And as they sit there, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and said, tell us, when will this happen? You're predicting that the temple will be destroyed. What we want to know is when precisely will this happen? But that isn't all that they ask. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And you'll notice how they telescope the predicted destruction of the temple into the end of the age and the coming and glory of God. In other words, in their understanding, when Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, as far as they're concerned, that's the end of the age. God is going to wrap everything up. Well, Jesus now begins to answer these questions, but he begins to unravel them. And he differentiates between when the temple will be destroyed and the end of the age. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, this is a great, great verse for us. Notice what Jesus said. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testament to all nations before the end of the age. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, that is, remember that Daniel said this, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Now, does any of that resonate with what you've been reading in Daniel. Well, of course it does. When you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation. What was that? That was what Daniel spoke about. But what was Daniel speaking about? He was speaking about what would happen when Antiochus Epiphanes would profane the temple in the 160s BC. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. He's taking that same idea now and he's transferring it into an entirely different situation. And what Jesus predicted took place in A.D. 70, at the time when the emperor Titus besieged the city of Jerusalem. They went through a terrible time and in the end he marched in with his Roman legions carrying their banners which were an object of worship. They put them up in the temple and they profaned the temple all over again. There was tremendous resistance to them. There was great warfare and terrible bloodshed in Jerusalem at that time. Distress like they'd never seen before. And the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was burned down to the ground. And the Jewish people were dispersed throughout the whole world. And to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, there's no temple there. 
on the ancient site of the temple, there are now two Muslim mosques. There is no temple to Jehovah. And the only remnants of this great temple, where Jesus said there'll be no stones left standing on each other, the only remnant are some huge stones that form the platform or the plinth on which the temple was built. We call that the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, a place of profound significance to the Jewish people, for there it is that they go to pray. So what Jesus is predicting came true in A.D. 70. But he goes even further than that and shows that what he was talking about that would happen at the time of A.D. 70 would have indications of things even worse than that, even further into the future. We know that he was specifically referring to the generation that were living at the time when he spoke, for he says in verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. However, after verse 36 in Matthew 24, he now it seems to be expanding what he's talking about, and he begins to address the return of the Lord and the end of the age. Now then, let's move on to pick up the clue of what Jesus is talking about here now. Let me just back up a minute, just so that you're following me. The prophecy of Daniel in the 6th century BC is fulfilled in great measure in the 2nd century BC with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the, the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. After that, in AD 70, we have the destruction of the temple all over again, the, the raising of Jerusalem down to the ground, as predicted by the Lord Jesus. But in this prediction, the Lord Jesus is not just answering the question, when will this temple be destroyed? He then begins to talk about what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. The Thessalonians were being upset because somebody purported to send a letter or a prophetic statement from Paul saying that the day of the Lord had already happened. He said, don't you believe it? Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped and even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now then, what we're talking about here is that which the Lord Jesus predicted and what Paul says is yet hidden in the future. It's in the future from when Paul is writing in the first century AD. Now what's he predicting? He is predicting that in the same way that Antiochus Epiphanes moved into the ancient temple and set himself up as superior to God, and the same way that Titus and the Roman legions came and set themselves up as superior to God, and on both occasions there was terrible distress and terrible destruction in Jerusalem, he says there is yet a coming day when the man of lawlessness, the ultimate in evil, will be raised up. 
That's what Paul is saying. The time is coming when the ultimate in evil, the man of lawlessness, will come. He has to come before the Lord Jesus returns in glory. Now, part of the question that the disciples asked Jesus, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? When will be the end of the age? Part of the answer to that question was AD 70. The first part was answered then, but then the rest is yet to be fulfilled. We are now in the area of what we call eschatology, where the question is, what will be the sign of Christ's coming, and when will be the end of the age? Well, two things we're told. Number one, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all nations before the end comes. Number two, the man of lawlessness must come and be defeated before the end comes. Now, these are two indicators. Rather interesting. On the one hand, we have the idea of the tremendous outreach of the gospel of Christ into all the nations of the world, bringing untold blessing. And at the same time, we have the promise of the rise of the man of lawlessness, untold distress. So the question that people will often ask is, are things going to get better or are things going to get worse? And the answer, of course, is yes. Are things going to get better? Are things going to get worse? The answer is yes. Why are they going to get better? Because the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations before the great and glorious return of the Lord Jesus to establish his eternal kingdom. Things are going to get better, folks. But evil is going to be compounded, and there will be the epitome of evil, the man of lawlessness, who will arrive and establish himself as the ultimate antichrist. Now, John, in his epistle, talks about multiple antichrists. We've seen a few of them, haven't we? We've seen Antiochus Epiphanes. We've seen Titus. We've seen all these people who have come and gone. All these great beasts that came out of the sea. All these rams and these goats and all these tremendous powers opposing the the forces of good and of God. They've come and they've gone. And antichrists have come and antichrists have gone. But there seems to be a sense in which there will be an intensifying of evil at the same time that there is a spreading of the gospel before the great day of our Lord's return. And this is yet in the future. We're also told something else, that one day there will be a great resurrection of the dead, great and small, and that the dead, great and small, will stand before the great white throne. This in Revelation chapter 20. So in the same way that Daniel predicts that those who sleep in the dust of death will arise, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So we see Revelation picking up this theme, but not now in terms of what will happen after Antiochus Epiphanes, but what will happen after the return of Christ, when there is the great final judgment day. It's coming. Folks, it's coming. 
And those who lie in the dust of death, the dead, small and great, will be raised and they'll be presented before the great white throne. Oh, and there's something else. You remember what Daniel said, that those whose names are found written in the book will be raised to everlasting life. Revelation picks up on that idea and says that at the great white throne, the books will be opened. And those whose names are found written in the Lamb's book of life will be introduced to life eternal. And listen very carefully. And those whose names are not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. There is nothing more stark in Scripture than that. That at the great white throne, the dead, small and great, will stand before God, and those whose names are written in the book of life will be introduced to life eternal, and those whose names are not found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. Read it for yourself in Revelation chapter 20. The question now then is, well, you know, who's where? Well, let me give you a very, very simple answer to that. In probably the best-known verse in the Bible. Well, actually, it used to be the best-known verse in the Bible. Now, the best-known verse in the Bible is, judge not that you be not judged. But it used to be John chapter 3.16, the best-known verse in the Bible that I just can't remember. John chapter 3, verse 16. Listen very carefully. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish like a fire, but have everlasting life. So here's the picture. The prediction is that the man of lawlessness will come, evil will wax worse, he will be defeated at the return of Christ. At that time, the gospel of the kingdom will have been preached in all nations. At the great white throne, the dead, small and great, will be raised before God, and they will be evaluated on one basis, on one basis only. If they're in the Lamb's book of life, they're in. If they're not in the Lamb's book of life, they're out. That's what it says. Then how do we make sure if we're in the Lamb's book of life or not in the Lamb's book of life? How do we know if we have eternal life or if we're perishing? And the answer is God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, submits to him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. What does it do to you when you hear those words? Doesn't it put an icy hand around your heart? It's so easy to get into a Christian community, a nice Christian church, where we've got a wonderful Christian program and all kinds of stuff going on. In fact, to be part and parcel of a thoroughgoing, self-contained, hermetically sealed evangelical subculture and forget that people are actually perishing, that people actually don't have their name in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's possible to forget, not even to care 
that there is such a thing as eternal separation from God. And surely one thing that Daniel is saying to us is this, that there are those who will be raised from the dust of death to everlasting life, but there will be those who will be raised from the dust of death to everlasting shame and contempt. And not to be concerned about that is clearly not a healthy spiritual attitude. In fact, we are told in this passage of Scripture something very, very wonderful. Let me remind you of what Daniel said. He said, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. A number of years ago, I was invited to go and speak at a chapel service at the baseball all-star game. And I thought it was a bit of a shame, actually, that I got the chance to go and meet all these all-star baseball players when there's some real baseball fans around who haven't had that chance. But anyway, that's tough. <laughs> and so I went and I met, I met all these guys. A lot of them came to the chapel service. And, and I spoke to them on how to be an all-star. Do you know how to get to be an all-star? Well, they all thought they knew the answer, but they didn't. Because, you see, what, what I told them was this. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God's all-stars. God's all-stars. Who are they? They're the people who go around in a world where evil is getting more evil, where they know that there's a great cosmic conflict going on, they are those who go around in a world who know that behind all the great forces, the political and national and international intrigues that are going on, there are spiritual dynamics. There are people who live with this tremendous sense of the vastness and the enormity of the cosmic struggle, and they, they shine like the brightness of the morning. Jill and I have been back in England, and because we're a little bit jet-lagged. I was waking up very early. And so I got up very early in the morning and went out in Hyde Park just before the dawn. And as I got out into Hyde Park in the middle of London, that great city was quiet. It reminded me of Wordsworth's poem written from London Bridge. He looked at over London and he said, and all that mighty heart is lying still. That's what London was like in the early dawn morning. And then, insidiously, there is a brightening of the firmament. Insidiously, the dawn comes up. And you see the dark being relentlessly swept away. And the quiet, relentless dawning of the day. And those who are wise, and those who turn many to righteousness, will be like the brightness of the firmament. They'll roll back darkness wherever they are. They'll turn people to righteousness. They know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where they're wise. And they know that fools say there's no God. The Old Testament kind of narrows things down a bit. It says there are the wise and the fools. And the wise are those who fear the Lord and the fools who say no to God. And those who are wise and have such an impact through their shining 
that they turn others to righteousness in the midst of this rough, tough, evil world. They're God's all-stars. And if this message of the fact that there will be those who ultimately will stand before the great white throne and be cast into the lake of fire because they are not found in the Lamb's book of life, if it means anything, doesn't it mean to you and to me and to the Daniels of this world, we need some old stars, we need some wise people, we need people who know how to turn others to righteousness, we need people who are going to give the lead. Well, Daniel is given this troubling vision. He understands a lot of it, a lot of it he doesn't understand. You and I understand a whole lot more than Daniel did because we have Christ and we have the New Testament. But he did know this. That is, he's asking the question basically, well, what have I got to do with all this? How do I handle this? The answer is this, Daniel, just go your way. And one day you will go to your rest and then you will be raised to your inheritance. What a lovely statement this is with which to end the story of Daniel. We met him as a young man, taken captive from his beloved Jerusalem, taken off into Babylon. We've followed him through the ups and downs of his career. We've seen him growing in knowledge of what God is doing in the world. And now he's an old man. And he's confronting all that is happening. And he's dealing with the enormous issues being presented to him. But what he's told to do is this. Daniel, the one thing you need to make sure of is that in the midst of all the conflict and in the midst of all the turmoil, just keep on keeping on. You are a man highly esteemed, Daniel. The reason you're highly esteemed, Daniel, is that you've never asked God for anything on the basis of your own merits. All you've ever asked God for is on the basis of God's mercy. Well, keep on with that humble attitude. Keep on with that humble attitude, Daniel. Oh, Daniel, right from the very beginning, you showed the king. You weren't going to compromise. That there were certain things where you would identify with them. You weren't going to be isolated. You weren't going to be a hermit. You weren't going to try and hermetically seal yourself against things. You were going to work in the court, but you're a man of integrity. Well, just keep going like that, Daniel. Just keep on with that same old humility and keep on with that same integrity. Oh, and Daniel, Daniel, keep that discipline as well. You remember when that crazy king said, unless you bow down to the, you, you know, that big statue, he was going to throw you in the den of lions and do some awful stuff with you. And you remember that? And Daniel said, yeah, I remember that. What, what did he do? Well, he said, I always did pray three times a day. And I did it in front of the window facing Jerusalem because that was my orientation. Well, you buck the system there with, with considerable courage, Daniel. Just keep on. Just keep on like that. Just stay humble. Just stay trusting God. And just keep asking him for his mercy. And just go on being a man of integrity and keep those fundamental spiritual disciplines in your life, Daniel, and you'll be fine. You'll be just fine. You see, when you and I look at this world in which we're living, we can be overwhelmed by it all. God says, don't be overwhelmed. Don't be overwhelmed. I'm with you. I'm on the throne. I'm in control. I'm working out my purposes. All you need to do is just stay faithful. Just keep your integrity intact. Just maintain your spiritual disciplines. Just go on trusting. Just take it one step at a time. And then he says, by the way, Daniel, the day will come when you'll take your last step and you'll enter into rest. You'll enter into rest. 
Daniel, it won't be just sort of stepping into oblivion. No, the day will come when then you too will be raised to embrace your eternal inheritance. So Daniel, thank you for being to us what we needed you to be. A young man, a middle-aged man, an old man, a man at the pinnacle of power, a man thrust down into a place of defeat, a man who confronted the absolute worst in this world and at the end of his days is keeping on, keeping on, anticipating the day when he will quietly lay down his life in the arms of the Lord in sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And what does this have to do with you and me? I'll tell you what it has to do with you and me. Things that are bad are going to get worse. But this gospel of the kingdom is going to go on spreading inevitably, inexorably, relentlessly until it is spread to all the nations of the world. Evil will wax worse. The man of lawlessness will come, but he will be defeated. Christ will come in great glory. And those who are his will stand before his judgment and be exonerated and entered into life eternal. Why? Because their names are written in God's book of life. And your names are written in the blood of the Lamb. But let's not forget that in the meantime, before we lay down our lives in sure and certain hope of the resurrection, let's not forget that there are people who, if they died today, will go into the dust of death, ultimately to be raised and stand before the judgment seat and be found not written in the Lamb's book of life and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Don't ever forget it. And keep your heart and eyes open for those who need the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we... When we hear stuff like this, we have questions <laughs> like, when's all this going to happen? We want to fix the dates. We want to know exactly what you're going to do, when and how. And you've told us what you're going to do, but you don't tell us the when and you don't tell us necessarily the how. You want to keep us just ever so slightly on the front edge of our seats. But my prayer is this, that every single person within the sound of my voice would take the time out in their own hearts to ask themselves the question, is my name inscribed in the book of the redeemed? Because I have come to the point of gladly yielding my life to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. And I gladly acknowledge him as my Savior and Lord. Lord, help everyone to answer that question honestly before you. And if they're not sure, draw them to the point where they will make sure. And quietly in their own hearts, simply bow humbly, thankfully, and receive your grace and your forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. And Lord, for those who for many, many years have known the Lord, our prayer is that we might, those of us who know the Lord, might strongly resist that which is wrong, that we might be wise in the way that we conduct ourselves, that we might in the power of your Spirit be effective in turning many to righteousness. 
in short, that we'd be enlisted and you're all stars. Hear our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.